0: Nahum chapter 2. Last week we saw God's righteous decree against Nineveh. Today we're going to see his justice on display against Nineveh. It's a good chapter. Nahum 2. Let's start in verse number 1. He that dasheth in pieces has come up before thy face. Keep the munition, watch the way, make thy loins strong, fortify thy power mightily. For the Lord had turned away the excellency of Jacob, as the excellency of Israel, for the emptiers have emptied themselves emptied them out and marred their vine branches. The shield of his mighty men is made red, the valiant men are men are in scarlet, the chariot shall be with flaming torches in the day of his preparation, and the fir tree shall be terribly shaken. The chariots shall rage in the streets. They shall jostle one against another in the broadways. They shall seem like torches. They shall run like the lightnings. He shall recount his worthies. They shall stumble in their walk. They shall make haste to the wall thereof, and the defense shall be prepared. The gates of the river shall be opened, and the palace shall be dissolved. And Huzab shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up, and her maids shall lead her as with the voice of doves, tapering upon their breasts. But Nineveh is of old like a pool of water, yet they shall flee away. Stand, stand, shall they cry, but none shall look back. Take ye the spoil of silver, take the spoil of gold, for there is none end of the store and glory out of all the pleasant furniture. She is empty and void and waste, and the heart melteth, and the knees smite together, and much pain is in all the loins, and the faces of them all gather blackness. Where is the dwelling of the lions, and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion, even the old lion, walked, and the lion's whelp, and none made them afraid? The lion did tear in pieces enough for his whelps, and strangled for his lionesses, and filled his holes with prey, and his dens with raven. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will burn her chariots in the smoke, and the sword shall devour thy young lions, and I will cut off thy prey from the earth, and the voice of thy messengers shall no more be heard. Powerful words from the prophet to Assyria. I mentioned some of this last week. I'll mention it again. When people question God's... What's the term I'm looking for? Execution of justice... Where do they usually start? We mentioned it last week. They start with hell, don't they? Uh, They start with sin and suffering. If God is righteous, why is there suffering? If God is just, why is there suffering? Of course, the answer is because we're not righteous and we're not just. And so the unbeliever looks to the world. I was watching one this week. I I have this, you know how you have dark hobbies sometimes? Mine become watching Christian deconstruction videos on YouTube. It's mesmerizing to me. Because I watch these, I, I spent more time than I should have let yesterday watching those videos. And as these people make their case for why they left the Christian faith, it's so easy to penetrate the heart of it. I mean, as they're going through their videos, I'm pausing and arguing back to what they said. Like, it's obvious. They left because of one thing. They love sin. That's what it was. And they believed in the head, but never got to hear. And so when they started to believe something else, they just stopped believing from the head about Christ and... Of course, they've all gone to these extreme, liberal, there's no like moderate. You know, you, know, you know why? Because they hate Christ. It's not that they just stop believing. They hate Christ. That's why they're all so extreme. As I'm watching these videos, one girl in particular said the turning point for her was going to Germany. And going through a a museum, a history of the Holocaust. She said, I just, I couldn't believe in a God who would let so much suffering happen. If He were good, He would have stopped it. Of course, my first thought was who are you to decide if someone is good or not? You're not good. Five minutes later, she says, now I have my flaws. Yeah, you do. One of those is judging God for who he is. There's been a lot of suffering in human history. You and I know, we pretend in America, right? We pretend history started in 1776 and nothing else happened before that. The Holocaust was almost nothing compared to some of the human suffering that's happened in the past. I mean, there's been some really horrendous things that human beings have done to each other down through the ages. That doesn't negate God's goodness. Say, so why didn't God stop it? I don't know, and you don't either. And who is, the, who is the clay to answer back to the potter and say, You have to do this? You should have done this. You're the clay. You have no idea what he's doing. Now, I know when we get to the end and we look back over all that God did in his dealings with humanity, you and I will look back and say, Oh, That was the best possible course of action. He knows more than we do. He sees the whole thing from beginning to end and everything in between. But they want to question God's goodness because sin happens. Now, of course, the one thing this young lady and all these people I was watching couldn't account for is why those things are wrong if God doesn't exist. I mean, if, if, if we're just cosmic accidents that evolved over time, if we're just animals with clothes on, who says it's wrong to do those things? I mean, she was on there condemning pedophilia with a love is love t-shirt on. Does she not see the contradiction? Who's to decide? Why is their love wrong? This over here is okay. And you can have all your reasons, but 20 years ago, this was wrong. And now it's accepted. Why is it wrong to murder? If there's no intrinsic value to human, why is it wrong? And if we can't justify why it's wrong, why is God wrong for allowing it to happen? And then they all had a problem with hell. I just couldn't believe in a God who would send people to hell you believe in God Romans 1 makes that clear what you don't like is the God you know exists how can God allow suffering to exist when much of today's suffering is injustice you understand that right Sin is what causes suffering. And we can, we can say that everyone's suffering today because of the fall, and that's true, but most suffering today is a direct result of sin. Why are all those migrants gathered in Tijuana? They're not gathered there for free welfare and hospital. They're there because in their homeland there are drug cartels and wicked regimes. Over them and wicked militaries who are inflicting pain and suffering. Sin is why they're there. Why are people starving in Africa? We send billions of dollars over there to the governments who don't give it to the people. They're suffering because of sin. The answer is simply this I don't know why. God has chosen for it to go on. Now, my not knowing why doesn't make him wrong. It makes me a human being. It makes me clay and him the potter. He hasn't revealed to me why he allows that. But he has promised me something, that one day he will bring justice to the earth. And all those deconstructionists, they can never bring justice to the earth. All they can do is whine about it. But God has promised to bring justice. And by the way, hell is justice to sinners. People sin because they want to sin. They know God exists. It's not really atheism. Cain knew that God existed, didn't he? You ever read Genesis? Cain talked directly to God. Anyway, he never did. After he killed Abel, he never repented. Why? Because he was a sinner. Oh boy, if they could come back from hell today, boy, they'd get saved. They wouldn't. You know why? They're sinners. They're sinners. Hell is not going to make sinners repent. Nobody can repent unless God brings them back to spiritual life anyways. We have no indication that people in hell are new creatures in Christ. That's why hell is called, and I said this before, weeping and gnashing of teeth. What does that mean? Gnashing of teeth is like, it's like a word in the Bible for anger, right? They gnash your teeth and I'm going to get you. So people in hell are weeping, not over their sin, over their suffering. And they're gnashing their teeth at God. They hate God eternally. Hell is justice. But God has promised to bring justice to this world. To bring justice, you have to punish the evildoers. Go to Isaiah 42, verse 1. Real quick, let's get a couple of verses, and we'll get into the text. Isaiah 42.1. This is a wonderful promise. When someone asks, why does God allow injustice to go on? Read them this passage here. Isaiah 42.1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. That's Christ. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, And the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth. And the isles shall wait for his law. Christ is bringing justice to this world. And he's doing it in truth. That scares the unbeliever. (laughs) What they fear the most is the truth. Because the truth is they're dirty, rotten, depraved sinners. That hurts. That hurts. Go back to Nahum chapter 2. Jesus is bringing justice to this world. No sinner will get away with anything, ever. Remember that. No injustice will ever go unpunished. Like I mentioned last week, remember? I think it was last week. When somebody, you know, somebody who's obviously guilty gets a non-guilty verdict. What do you always hear people say? Oh, they got away with it. No, they didn't. I mean, for a short amount of time, maybe. But God's got everything written down. Nothing has escaped him. Nobody gets away with anything, ever. Ecclesiastes 12.14 says, For God shall bring every work into judgment, with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Everything is coming into judgment. For the unbeliever. Now for you and me, that happened on, Cal- on Calvary. Every sin was punished in Christ. Matthew 12, 36 says, But I say to you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Every idle word. Can you remember something you said 14 years ago on this day? I'm willing to bet you can't. God's got it all written down. Nobody will get away with anything on the Day of Judgment. Understand that. If these people really cared about God's justice, they would embrace the doctrine of eternal punishment because crimes against the Holy God cannot go unpunished. God is bound by His nature to be just. And bringing justice to the sinner leads us to the doctrine of hell. It has to. This is what we see in Nahum chapter 2. God's justice on display against Assyria. I mentioned last week, we saw it other places, didn't we? Sodom Gomorrah. Remember that place? That was God's justice. And they weren't even the worst sinners. Jesus saw, I think it was Capernaum, Right? So if the works done in you have been done in the Sodom your more, they would have repented. What an indictment upon those cities. Tyre and Sidon condemned as well. Egypt, how about Egypt, right? When you, re- when you remember the Ten Commandments or the Ten Plagues were judgments on ten gods of Egypt, God showing his power over those false gods. That devastated Egypt. I was watching a... It's hard to find good biblical history. I was watching one program on YouTube the other day that was talking about who the probable Pharaoh was during the time of Moses. And he's giving this secular history of Egypt showing that this this all lines up to the Bible, that Egypt experienced this great downfall and they never recovered the way they were before. God brought judgment to Egypt. Egypt. How about the land of Canaan? Wipe them out. Most of the cities that the Israelites went to were told to kill what? Man, woman, child, even the beasts. You know why? Because the people had sexual relations with the beasts. That's why it's in the law not to do that. Don't do as the people of the land have done. They defiled even the beasts that God said kill them all. Purify the land, purge the land. Judgment. I remember talking to somebody one time I an abortion clinic, a pro-life person who says they, you know, she knows the Bible says that God brought, you know, told them to go kill everyone in the land of Canaan, but she, says, I still struggle with that, how God could do that and kill those babies. She doesn't understand the nature of sin or the holiness of God. Judgment fell. The United States has laws. When I break those laws, Justice is demanded. It demands that I be punished. God has a divine law, and violations of those laws demand justice. Since God is infinitely holy, it calls for infinite punishment. I hate this whole God doesn't send people to hell thing. I don't know if I mentioned that last week or not. I meant to mention it last week, but I hate that. You ever hear evangelicals say that? God doesn't send anybody to hell. He just gives them their choice. I mean, and I told my wife tonight, yes and no. A guy commits murder. He chose the punishment of murder. But the judge still sends him to his sentence. See, we got to stop pretending like we're God's PR. As if he has a bad image, we have to make it look better. Oh, yeah, God doesn't really cast people into hell. No, 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 no. He just gives them their choice. It's It's out of his hands. No, it's not. He doesn't need our help. He is infinitely holy. He has every right to judge the wicked. We don't need to defend him. And by the way, I say this a lot because it needs to be said. Revelation 22. Nobody jumps into the lake of fire. Right? They're cast. What the word cast means? Hurled, thrown violently. They're kicking and screaming. They don't want to go. They're sent there because of their sin. Because they have violated God's law. They have chosen to go there by their disobedience to God's law. And God, as a righteous judge, is just to send them there. We don't need to protect his image. He's fine. God is going to bring justice. God is right for bringing justice, as we'll see in this chapter. Look at verse 1. Let's get into our text. He that dasheth in pieces is coming up before thy face. Keep the munition, watch the way, make thy loins strong, fortify thy power mightily. We already know that God is not afraid to righteously mock his enemies, is he? Oh, we see it in scripture. Psalm 2, 4. He that sit in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. That is speaking of the crucifixion in context. Right? The kings of the earth, they gather against the Lord, against his Christ. Let's cast them off from us. He that sits in heaven laughs. You know what God was doing in heaven while Jesus was going up Calvary? Laughing at them. Laughing at them. When Paul was walked to be beheaded, God was laughing at them. Let's get rid of this guy. He's he's a thorn in our, let's get rid of him. We'll just wipe out this whole Christian movement. And God laughed. It was laughable. We're going to cast off the Messiah. We're going to kill him. We're going to seize his inheritance. The people will be ours. And God laughed. Are you kidding me? Do you think you have power? That's why Jesus said, you have no power over me. Except what's given you from above. Everything you're doing is in God's control. Proverbs 126 says, I also will laugh at your calamity. I'll mock when your fear cometh. God's not afraid to mock his enemies because they're foolish. Can you imagine Benjamin came out right there in the hospital room, stands up and goes, I'm going to take you and fight you right now. Number one, amen. That's a million dollar baby. He can talk. I'm personally excited about that. I'm building you guys a brand new church building that happens. Anyways, that'd be laughable, right? A little baby and a grown man fighting. That's what it looks like when man stands up to God and shakes his fist. It's laughable to God. Like an ant, you can just crush with your thumb. It's laughable. Here in our text, we begin with God mocking his enemies. They've sinned against him long enough. They've brazenly, unashamedly turned their backs on God. They have flaunted their hatred of God. and Now it's time for God to bring justice. He that dasheth in pieces is coming up before thy face, he says. Just as God used Assyria as a tool to punish Israel, he's bringing another nation now, a new hammer in his hand, to punish the Assyrians. They're but tools in God's hands. The disperser was coming, the one who would exact justice on the Assyrians. And now the mockery. Keep the munition, he says. Watch the way. Make thy loins strong. Fortify thy power mightily. He's not giving them advice on how to defend themselves. He's making fun of them. Go ahead. Fortify, fortify yourselves mightily. Get them, come on. grow up your loins. Come on. Get ready for battle. Make sure you're ready to go. Because this army over here is under God's control. They're not going to win. He's mocking the Assyrians in this verse. Make yourself as strong as you possibly can, and then you're going to lose. Remember, God wants to show His power. I mentioned, I think I mentioned it last week. Yeah, I got ahead of myself. I got excited about this message last week. I got, I took from it. But when when Elijah, when he's the prophet of Baal, right? It wasn't just like a fair fight, like your sacrifice versus mine. He's like, okay, for yours, go ahead, and for mine, we're just going to pour lots of water on it. We're going to make it unlikely that it's going to burn. Let's just And let's just flood the whole thing with water. And then the, the fire of God comes down and takes up the sacrifice, takes up the water. What's he's doing here? He's saying, get in your fortification. Make yourself strong. Gird up your loins. Come on. Let's have a fight here. I'm going to defeat you in your strength. So no one can say, well, of course they fell. They were at a disadvantage. No, no. They were ready to go. He's warning, get ready to go. Get ready to fight. They took pride in their strength. But the Assyrians took pride in their strength. They marched around like lions. He used that term in this chapter, like lions devouring their enemies. He would defeat them in their strength. Verse 2, For the Lord had turned away the excellency of Jacob as the excellency of Israel, for the emptiers had emptied them out and marred their vine branches. This sounds like God was against Israel here, but it's saying really, that God has restored the excellency of Jacob. If you look back in in more of the original Hebrew language there, it's, he's coming to restore the excellency of Jacob for the emptiers have emptied them out. The word for would mean because, it's connecting the thoughts. So because Assyria has emptied out Israel and marred her vine branches, the Lord is now turning or restoring, restoring the excellency of Jacob. He has turned away the oppressors, the emptiers or plunderers have been, have emptied them out. This is speaking, I believe, of when they came and plundered the northern kingdom of Israel and took them, well, destroyed them and took them captive. That was God's judgment on them. Their goods, their land, their people were plundered. They marred their branches. Israel is often referred to as a fig tree. Verse 3, the shield of his mighty men is it made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariot shall be with flaming torches in the day of of his preparation, the fir tree shall be terribly shaken. The shield of his mighty men, this refers to the dasher in pieces, of course, the Medes who were coming against the Assyrians. They were coming to plunder Nineveh. Their shields were made red, probably from the blood of those they would dash in pieces. That's what he's talking about there. Their shields are made red from the blood of their enemies. The Assyrians were a savage and bloodthirsty people. Now their blood would be shed. They plundered many. Now they would be plundered. God judges according to our deeds. The valiant men are in scarlet, he says. I've heard of several probable reasons for this, but most likely the reason is to hide their wounds in battle. If you're in a battle with swords and you appear to be wounded, what does that do to your enemy? It emboldens them. So they wore scarlet, the Medes wore scarlet colored garments to hide blood, to hide, it was a, what do you call it? I'm not a military guy. I almost said psychic, but it's not. Hmm? Camouflage would be one way of looking at it. It's, um, it's right on the tip of my tongue too. It's psychological warfare. Psychologic warfare. I didn't start with a P, thank you. To camouflage their wounds, it was, and it was psychological warfare against their enemies so they didn't get emboldened by seeing them with their wounds. His chariots will be flaming torches and the fir tree should be shaken, he says. The Medes, this is very interesting, the Medes carried lit torches on the front of their chariots. I found that to be quite interesting. I was reading about that this week. That was kind of an early headlight system so they could see and travel at night as an army. But also that as they entered a a town or a village they could easily burn it down by having fire readily available. They were A very bloodthirsty people. The reference to the fir trees is a reference to the swiftness with which these chariots will approach. They'll be great in number, riding swiftly, causing the trees to shake as they pass. Verse 4. The chariots shall rage in the streets. They shall jostle one against another in the broad ways. They shall seem like torches. They shall run like the lightnings. The chariots shall rage in the streets. This means they will drive madly or furiously. They'll come quickly upon the Assyrians. They'll jostle one against another in the broad ways. The picture here is of the people of Nineveh looking down upon the road, and this army approaches. There's so many of them in the wide path. It looks like they're bumping against each other as they drive madly through the road. He's painting a picture to instill fear in his enemies. He tells them they will seem like torches. This, again, is how they would appear from a distance with lit torches on their chariots. Verse 5, he shall recount his worthies, they shall stumble in their walk, they shall make haste to the wall thereof, and the defense shall be prepared. There's debate among commentators on this verse. Some think it refers to Nineveh, some think it refers to Assyria. They're pretty evenly divided on it, the ones I was looking it up in to see what I could figure out about this verse. And uh, I tend to believe it's talking about the Assyrian, uh, Yeah, the Assyrians. I think there's a biblical reason to assume that. In verse 4, we see the enemy approach. So logically, I think it follows that verse 5 speaks of the attack. And we're seeing their preparations. For them. Remember, he told them, prepare for the attack, fortify yourself, prepare your defense. Then he goes in a couple of verses of they're coming and how they're coming, and you're going to see them coming. And now he's going back to the Assyrians again, okay, and tell them how to defend themselves. Recount his worthies implies they're choosing their best troops. The term worthies could also read valiant or noble men. They shall stumble in their walk, which refers to the haste with which they're called to action. Picture uh, the people of Nineveh looking down from the city and seeing this approaching army and calling up their army quickly to get in battle gear, to get ready to go. They're going to stumble in their walk. They're going to stumble over one another, getting ready for the battle. Which also tells us one important thing. Assyria didn't take this prophecy very seriously. They weren't prepared for battle. They didn't listen to the words of Nahum. They will make haste to the wall to defend it and protect themselves. Assyria now finds themselves in a very different position on defense. Assyria is used to being on the offense. They're the ones who went around the world conquering different nations, taking them prisoner, burning their cities, spreading their name around. They were the fierce ones, they were the lions. Now they're on defense. Now they're the ones who are afraid. Now they're the ones who are about to be plundered by their enemies. The defense shall be prepared. They will ready their defenses and think they're ready to repel the enemy, but ultimately they will fail. Verse 6. The gates of the river shall be opened and the palace shall be dissolved. The gates of the river shall be opened. This is probably a literal reference. Um, I looked up a few different commentators. Some saw it just as the... The flowing of the soldiers into the city would seem like a river. I don't think that really matches up very well with what actually happened. Uh, I think it's a literal reference. The city of Nineveh sat on the left or east side of the Tigris River. The city proper was in the form of an irregular parallelogram stretching from the northwest to the southeast. The city proper was enclosed by walls protected by moats. It was only the northwest point the city touched the Tigris River. The historian Diodorus of Sicily recorded about this time that when the Chaldeans besieged Nineveh, a mighty deluge of waters overthrew the walls of Nineveh by the space of two and a half miles. It was through this breach the Chaldeans made their entrance into the city. So I believe this is talking literally about the Tigris River overflowing and breaching the city, allowing them to enter the city. The palace shall be dissolved. This refers to the palace of the city, which was built uh, elevated on dried mud bricks. That's how the palace was built there. Verse 7. And Huzab shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up, and her maids shall lead her as the voice of doves, tabering upon their breasts. This is a hard verse to fully understand. Not just for me, for everybody else who studies Scripture, because I, I went to like nine commentaries to figure this verse out. And everyone disagreed with everybody else. It's amazing. There's no Huzab, Huzab mentioned in historical records as they've been excavating Nineveh since the 19th century. There's been no record of that being a person. We do have a few options here. I'll give you all the options and tell you where, kind of where I land on it. Huzab could refer to the king of Nineveh. It's a, a, it's a female name, okay? It, so it could be calling him an effeminate, like a queen. This could be a jab at him from the prophet, something like, he thought himself such a tough man, but he's more like a woman. Now, disclaimer. As this goes out on YouTube, I'm not saying women are weak and men are strong. But in this time and in this culture, that would have been a perception. That he's mocking him, you're just a woman. Now, nowadays that might bring him some pride and joy. (laughs) Thank you. But that day it wouldn't, it'd be an insult. That's a possibility, although I don't think it's a strong one. Huzab could be referring to Nineveh itself. Cities and nations are often referred to in the feminine. You might say something like, I love America. She's a good place to live. You've heard that before, uh, referring to a nation in the the feminine. In this case, the reference to the maids would be a reference to her nobles and great men, including the king. The third option is this being a reference to the queen of Nineveh, perhaps her name, and the reference to the maids are a reference to those who attended the queen, demonstrating that even the royals were taken captive and not spared. Um, the king of Nineveh, his name has been known through archaeology, but that name doesn't appear for a queen. So I land on the most likely interpretation being that of the city itself, is what it's talking about here. Uh, the reference to the mage are those who fled or were taken captive, and the, and the phrase, tabering upon their breasts, would reference mourning like beating their breasts. As they were led captive, they were beat their breasts and mourning over their defeat. Verse 8 But Nineveh is of old like a pool of water, yet they shall flee away. Stand, stand, shall they cry, but none shall look back. This verse is another reason I think the last verse is likely about the city. That's the context of this verse, and it flows really well with the last verse. Nineveh is of old. It's an ancient city, all the way back to the book of Genesis. Like a pool of water with many fish and much animal life, this city has a vast population of people. That's part of the reason God sent Jonah to show mercy to Nineveh, of those, because of the number of people that were there. Those multitudes will not be able to protect her in the day of God's judgment. There's no safety in numbers when standing against God. Stand, stand, they cry. These are probably military leaders fleeing to fleeing soldiers. Stand your ground. Maybe volunteers who were fighting in the fight as well. None will even look back; they will flee for their lives. Now, remember, Nineveh did—I mentioned, I think, last week—repelled the attack three times. But this is the final. This is they were they were they were partying. Remember, they were drunken, they were celebrating their victory, and that's when the other army invaded. Most likely, as the scripture is showing us, through the breach in the wall caused by the river, that's why when he, when they called for the men to get ready for battle. It says they stumbled on their way. They stumbled one over, one over the other. They weren't ready for battle. They were drinking. They were drunk. They were partying. They were celebrating. Their guard was down when all this happened. So I'm sure you had both military and volunteer fighters protecting the city. When they saw it was a lost cause, they began to flee from their lives. And the call comes out Stan, stand, stand. says they didn't even look back, they just took off. Verse 9, take ye the spoil of silver, take the spoil of gold, for there is none end of the store and glory out of all the pleasant furniture. Here the Lord, through the prophet, calls for the invading armies to take of the bounties of Nineveh. They took from other nations, didn't they, to enrich themselves. And now God's telling the new army, plunder them. Take all, there's no end to what they have. They've plundered from other nations, now they're being plundered themselves. Verse 10. She is empty and void and waste, and the heart melteth, the knees smite together, and much pain is in all loins, and the faces of them all gather blackness. The prophet rejoices in God's judgment. She's empty. She who engorged herself on the goods of others is empty, plundered, laid waste. Though once filled with so much wealth and opulence, she is now void and waste. The Assyrians were put to fear. They were once strong and boastful, and now their knees were knocking together. What a picture in the day of God's wrath. People today will raise their head and their hand against God. They'll curse God, they'll blaspheme. The day is coming, their knees will knock together. They'll tremble. And they'll fear before the Almighty. They can say they won't. That's fine. They can speak great words. You guys remember the guy at the park who had great, blasphemous words to yell in our faces? He too will bow one day with knees knocking together for fear of God. But it'll be too late. It's too late for Nineveh. Their fear won't bring them repentance. Repentance. They're fleeing won't help. Historical record that so many fled the city, the city easily taken, but see, they were all in a drunken stupor, <laughs> and most of them were killed outside the city. Bodies laid waste for the animals to eat. When God brings judgment, He brings judgment thoroughly. Keep in mind, He reminded you of this: Nineveh wasn't discovered until the 19th century. That's how complete her destruction was. God was angry. You know we still can't decide where Sodom and Gomorrah was. Everyone has an idea. Everyone's got a different location. You know what that tells me? That tells me that God was so furious with Sodom and Gomorrah, he laid waste at 4,000-something years later. We can't even identify where the city was anymore. It's gone. It's gone. It's laid waste. Verse 11 and 12, Where is the dwelling of the lions? God's mocking them again. And the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion, even the old lion, walked, and the lions whelp, and none made them afraid. The lion did tear in pieces enough for his whelps, and strangled for his lionesses, and filled his holes with prey, and his dens with raven. Raven. I like raven, I'm not sure that's true or not. In verse 11, God is mocking them, isn't he? Where is the place where you guys once dwelt securely and safely. Where is that place where you guys once tore others apart and feasted on them? Who are you now? You're not, you're not young lions or old lions anymore. Now you're fearful sheep and your great strong wall has been breached and the enemy has come in. You've been plundered as you plundered so many. Compare them to a lion is actually very apt as they prowled through the earth, destroying all that they met. Where is the dwelling of the lions, Nineveh? Where is their stronghold, the place they dwelt securely? Verse 12 recounts the fierceness of the Assyrians. Verse 13, behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will burn her chariots in the smoke. And the sword shall devour thy young lions. And I will cut off thy prey from the earth. And the voice of thy messenger shall no more be heard. Behold, he says, here comes a declaration from the Almighty. I'm against thee. What a fearful declaration to hear. I am against thee. You made an enemy of God Almighty. You're powerful. I'm all powerful. I'm against you. How do you think Ephesus felt after all those commendations from God in Revelation two? But they probably read that first part of the letter and said, hmm, "God's pretty happy with us," and then they came those words. But I have somewhat against thee. I have somewhat against thee. Or Jesus, when people stand before Him one day and claim, "We're Christians." I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew. I'm against you. I'm your enemy. What a bad place to be. They were powerful and mighty, yet the God of heaven and earth with all power was standing against them. That's why he mocks them. Get as strong as you can. Are you any match for me? Burning their chairs with fire is a reference to the destruction of their powerful military. The young lions would picture for us their soldiers and cutting off their prey as a reference to their not being able to harm anyone anymore. Let me make some application tonight. Nineveh is just a foreshadowing, as is Egypt, as is Sodom and Gomorrah, as is Canaan, as is Israel when it was destroyed in the first century. The foreshadowing of God's justice on display. There will be no explaining it away when God's judgment falls. Today, today we pretend, right? I mean, we know, you and I, we, we know that God's judging the world today and nations today. But they're in denial about it. They call it global warming, or climate change. They see this political issues to be tossed back and forth between political parties. But the day is coming when God's justice will be on display in such a way they won't be able to deny it. They'll be terrified by it. Each and every sinner. And Romans 1 tells us they're without excuse. There'll be no excuse on that day. There'll be no blaming God. All there will be with a hand over their mouth as they're silent before God because they know that they're sinners. Nineveh is just a foreshadowing of what God's going to do to every sinner. He's going to lay them waste. He's going to lay them waste. Verse, point number two, those who mock God today will be mocked by God on the day of judgment. Remember that. Don't hate them. Pity them. If they don't turn to Christ before then. I saw a ridiculous picture on social media the other day. I was just going on there to post a picture of our beautiful new gates. And a picture pops up. Of Jesus, supposed to be Jesus, He was actually a white guy with long hair. I don't know who that guy was. with tear-filled eyes sending people to hell. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. I'll mock when your fear comes, he says. You'll call, I'll not answer you. He is angry with the wicked. Do you understand that? He, is ang- and he has every right to be angry with the wicked. Jesus Christ is not neutral to sin. He's not neutral. He's not giving people two options and just has his fingers crossed they'll choose the right one. He's angry with sinners. He will mock them one day in their fear. I don't mean to paint Jesus as this angry Satanist. I really don't. If you think that's what I'm picturing, I'm envisioning here, you don't understand the righteousness of God either. People in hell will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. The Bible says, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, he will behold their suffering and be satisfied in it. Because he's holy and righteous. Those who humble themselves and seek refuge in Christ will be honored on that day, not mocked. He honors those who trust in him. Number three, God made a complete end of Nineveh and Assyria. He will one day bring an end to all unrighteousness. All of it. Number four, God is against those who do evil remember that what did he say to Assyria behold I am against you he's against them it's funny you know people like I do they're not saved and they'll tell you I'm praying for you okay it does no good I have one person I know who's not a Christian at all. Anytime I'm sick, if I post it on Facebook, I'm praying for a quick recovery. What does God say to her? think he, he hears her prayer? I'm against you. I'm against you. He's against the sinner. I was watching Jason's favorite pastor, Joel Osteen, the other day. Well, it's actually Jason's house. He forces me to watch him when I'm there. <laughs> he comes on the TV. and the First thing he says is, church, and all his fake teeth showing. God is not against you. God is for you. And if you're watching on TV right now, he's for, I was trying to do the, he's for you too. That's a lie. God is holy. He cannot bear with sinners. He cannot tolerate sin. You understand? He is disgusted by sin. This Dodger stuff that rubs Gary the wrong way, you know what it does to Christ? It infuriates him. He hates sin. He's against the sinner. What are we going to do now? Tell them. Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. That's the message. God called them to repent. Find refuge in him. If you don't, if you don't, I'm against you, saith the Lord. Oh, here's other judging people. No, no, no. He that believeth not is condemned already. I don't condemn anybody. When I'm out there preaching, I'm simply telling them you're condemned. Repent and turn to Christ. Church, we would do well not to tolerate sin. If we love Christ, we're not to tolerate sin. You're going to hear a lot this the coming month. To love people is to accept them. No, to love people is to warn them, to warn them, not to, not to coddle them, not to pretend they're okay. God is angry, and what he is doing to Nineveh, he will do to every sinner one day. So repent and run to Christ for refuge. Psalm 34, 15, I'll read here. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. God is serious about sin. We should be too. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time together tonight, Lord. This is a hard passage. Those who don't know you and don't love you would look at it and say, what a harsh and angry God you are. And you are angry with sin. Sin is a violation of your holy and righteous nature. If you could tolerate sin, you would not be righteous. Righteous. And so, Lord, tonight, we in this church don't judge you for what you did to Nineveh. We bow the knee and say, that was just. And were you not gracious to us and granting us everlasting life, you'd be just to crush each and every one of us. Because we have all sinned against you. And so this passage doesn't bring to my mind the harshness of your judgment, but rather the graciousness of your mercy. The Ninevites didn't deserve your mercy, and neither did I. But you've been so gracious to me. And there are others today in this world who are under the condemnation of their sin and justly others to whom you wish to show mercy, oh Lord, bring them across our path at the park, at the clinic, at the pier, at our jobs, at the gas station, at the grocery store, bring them across our path. that we may give them the words of everlasting life, that they too might flee from the wrath to come. We love you, Lord. You are fierce, and your wrath is great against sin, and justly so. But your mercy and your love and your grace and your long-sufferingness, Lord, are also great. You're good, a stronghold in the time of trouble. Like a mother hen, you cover us with your wings. You protect us. Those who seek you will find you. If they seek you with all their heart. Thank you for the mercy of Christ. The mercy of the cross. And Lord, may our continued study of this book give us a compassion for the lost, a love for the lost. Lord, save people through this church, through our people. Make your name known throughout the South Bay. I know they're without excuse, just by nature itself. But may our preaching be so loud and so often that when anybody in the South Bay dies, they stand before you. They can't say, I didn't hear. I didn't know. That little church down there on the corner, they tried to tell me. Oh, Lord. Lord. Your judgment is coming. Your judgment is coming. May we be busy turning many to righteousness. Make your name great in the South Bay, in California, in the United States of America. In Jesus' name, amen. You're